Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you tonight to turn to 2 Peter 1.7 again. For the last uh, few weeks, if I can reverse the common adage, we have been borrowing uh, from Paul to pay Peter. As we're looking at love, and I've been relying a lot on what Paul says on the subject of love, particularly his definition uh, that he gives us in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. 2 Peter, I may have said 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Is there any air conditioning in this building? (laughs) Please. (laughs) Thank you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. We pray, O God, that uh, you would continue to help us in the meditation on this subject of love. Grant us, Lord, your help tonight, not only to be hearers of the word, but doers of it. Lord, may we avoid the trap of the church at Ephesus that lost their first love. Uh, may we, Lord, not be orthodox and loveless, but we pray that we'd have both orthodoxy and a loving spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 7, And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Now, we've been talking about love for the last few weeks, and we're continuing now to think together on this subject. The Apostle Paul, telling us what love is and what it looks like, in addition to the things that we have been looking at, uh, says that love believes all things. Now, this uh, is an interesting phrase here, love believes all things. That could certainly be easy to misunderstand. First of all, let's start with what it does not mean. It does not mean that it is contrary, of course, to prudence. Love is not contrary to wisdom or to prudence. That is, we are not to be naive. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 15 tells us, the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. So Christian love does not mean we believe everything in that sense that Proverbs is warning us of. It does not mean, for example, we are free to believe error. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, that we should test the spirits to see if they be of Christ. Those who deny Jesus came in the flesh, John says they are not to be followed. It doesn't mean that we become universalists, that we believe that any religion, if followed sincerely, leads one to heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 5 tells us here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God alone, only the Lord. Listen to what Matthew Henry says that it does mean, though. Matthew Henry says this, Love that believes all things means, quote, to be apt to believe well of all. Apt to believe well of all. To entertain a good opinion of them when there is no appearance to the contrary. And he also adds, to believe well when there may even be some dark appearances, if the evidence of ill is not clear. All right? 
So he says that we are to maintain and entertain a good opinion when there is no appearance to the contrary, but even if there are some dark appearances, he says that even then, if the evidence is not clear, we still must seek to maintain a good opinion. Love maintains a good opinion of them. Even if there are things that concern you, that we give the benefit of the doubt to the other if the evidence is not clear. Now, this, of course, is not what is practiced in our culture. One only need look at various cable channels and look at uh, the politics of our day, which often is heated, and there is actually the opposite, the temptation to think the worst of the opposing party, the opposing candidate, the opposing official, and things get nasty very quickly. That is, there is uh, within us as sinners the desire to believe the worst report or suspect the worst of motivations. But for the Christian, love should temper our judgment. Christian love should not be too quick to suspect motives or denounce others as liars if there is a probable way of interpreting their words more charitably. Again, this does not mean we are to be naive. We must be shrewd, the Bible says, we'll be shrewd as a servant, but what? Innocent as a dove. <clears throat> this applies not only in politics, but in our community. We live in a smaller community. This is not Atlanta. And in a smaller community, gossip can go around. Stories in that gossip can become distorted. Misinformation can spread. We've all probably in our youth played the telephone game where you start with one person and you whisper in their ear and they whisper on down the line. And what the message ends up being at the end is different than what was stated at first, when it went into the first ear. Gossip can be like that. And we, therefore, need charity uh, because charity requires that, uh, to quote one um, commentary, is where we stretch, is, charity requires that we stretch its faith beyond appearances for the support of the kind opinion. Appearances may look suspicious, but love says, is there a legitimate and reasonable way to interpret the facts that support a kind of opinion of the other? Unquote from, again, one of our commentators. Um, they go on, have I exhausted beyond credulity and good reason all interpretations of the matter before I conclude a negative opinion? One time um, I was in uh, a church where I was the intern and we were having a problem with some zealous young men uh, who were in their 20s and 30s and who were judging uh, some of the teenagers in the youth group as being non-believers, even though these young people in the youth group were in good standing with the elders. But uh, some of these overly zealous uh, young men were saying, I don't like this aspect of their life and this aspect of their life. And, and, um, and therefore, we're, we're condemning uh, covenant community children and teenagers as non-believers because they weren't meeting their standards. Now, there may be legitimate pastoral concerns with some of the type of music they were listening to or something like that, but there was no evidence 
that could be so conclusive that these young men had the right to judge these people in the youth group as non-believers. So actually, the pastoral work that needed to be done was with these older uh, guys uh, in the church. It was wrong, actually, of them to make such a judgment when they are members in good standing. They had not been brought up on any charges, nor was the session even intending to bring them up on any charges. This is what Paul is speaking of here. Love, Christian love makes us amiable, well-natured. I think I'm quoting here from Matthew Henry. Happy the man who has this heavenly fire glowing in his heart. And that happy fire is an, an amiable quality to him. Charity requires that we go for the best opinion of another person. Love requires that unless the evidence is beyond all good prudence, if there is a benefit of doubt to be given, uh, then it needs to be given. This also applies in the church, I think, too. We have to, charity requires that we suspend private judgment if a legal functional judgment of the session or of the civil magistrate has not been pronounced, that is, to put it in common parlance, innocent until proven guilty. Somebody may be arrested, they may be charged, but that still doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty. And we have to, as as charitable people, hold to that opinion until it is proven otherwise. Uh, We can think of some infamous cases where that was not the case, I think, with our culture at large. Many of you might remember, I think it was back in 1996, and the Olympic Park bombing, and um, where that bomb went off during the Olympics. And who was the suspect? Well, it was a man named Richard Jewell. And uh, Richard Jewell happened to be the man who discovered this unattended package He was the one who alerted the authorities to it, but then, of course, you know, it it went off. Suddenly, Richard Jewell became the suspect that he had actually planted that package there. Well, as you know, uh, even though Richard Jewell did much in saving lives and alerting the police, he became the suspect. And um, he fit the lone bomber profile, we were told, by the media. And, of course, uh, later... Uh, he was exonerated and indeed even had to uh, received a settlement from NBC News uh, because uh, they had convicted him in, in the press. You think of the uh, Duke lacrosse case where the media and the culture and many in community groups had already condemned the students uh, who were at that party uh, where the woman was accused of being raped and uh, not uh, realizing that her, her testimony just did not hold up under cross-examination, and that uh, she made the story up. So we have to be very careful um, in in situations uh, where they maybe there there are charges, specific charges, but there hasn't been a conviction. Uh, Too many times something goes down and, and it's on video and there is just the immediate jump to the conclusion because it's on the video that these parties you know, must be guilty, and, and, but we have to wait for the process here. That includes even within the church. We cannot privately excommunicate those who are in good standing with the church. You and I are not the church. 
as individuals. Um, if the church has not suspended or excommunicated somebody, then we must be careful not to inwardly condemn them as outside of grace. Now, this, of course, is what the Pharisees did not do. The Pharisees were not loving in that they did not extend charity to our Savior. But what did they do? They condemned Jesus quickly when Jesus performed a miracle in front of their eyes. They attributed that miracle to Satan where they went out of the synagogue and immediately began to plot how to kill him because he did it on the Sabbath day. Charity requires, John MacArthur says, charity requires that even if another is found guilty, this is an interesting statement, even if the person is found guilty through due process, that love will credit them with the best of motive in that guilt. So a high standard here uh, set by many of our, our commentators on, on this subject here. But love also believes all things with respect to God. Christian love applies to our relationship with God as well. That is, that the Christian, as a Christian, we are required to charitably believe everything that is in God's word. We, we cannot be, as our first parents in the garden, listening to the suggestion of Satan and trying to weigh in our own mind, whether what God says is really true or not, or what Satan says is true. You see, that's the trouble that Adam and Eve quickly got themselves into. They, they were not acting charitably towards God's word. God was not being narrow with them. He said, you may eat of any of the trees in the garden, except this one. But they were growing suspicious of God, thinking that God was being narrow with them by prohibiting them prohibiting them from this one tree. God was seeking their welfare, and God cannot lie. And yet, what was the devil trying to do? The devil who was lying was trying to convince Adam and Eve that it was God who was lying. He doesn't want you to eat of this tree because you'll have the knowledge of good and evil and you'll be like him. You see, God is holding out on you. And, and so, when we think about what it means to love it means we also have to believe his word because the Bible, Jesus says, thy word is truth. And so we have to believe the scriptures always against what we may see or perceive or feel. We have to believe the word of God rather than our own senses at times. For example, providence might be very hard against you. Think of Job. And you may be tempted to think that all things do not work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You could see how Job might be tempted to believe that and to distrust God and to forsake God. And that was the point, right? It was, is Job going to forsake God and his word? But we as, as Christians must exercise charity towards God. And I, I would encourage you, if you have dark suspicions about the way God is dealing with you, you need to repent of that. Um, now, I'm not minimizing what you might be going through. I want you to hear me there. There are many trials in, that we go through as Christians, but we cannot then interpret providence in such a way that causes us to have dark thoughts about God and his word. We have to believe that God is love. We, we have to believe 
that God is truth. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. The scriptures are God-breathed. They are profitable. They cannot be broken. So we must always believe that God's word, uh, we, we must always believe God's word that all things are for our good. Even when we are going through difficult times and dark things are happening around us, Satan would have you doubt the goodness of God, especially when you're suffering. He would rather you believe something other than the word. But Christian love reminds us of our duty towards God himself. Think about Abraham from the Old Testament. Abraham, as we said this morning, was told something that really, from his perspective and Sarah's perspective, seemed incredible, that he and Sarah would have a biological child in their old age. How can that be? But Abraham's love for God causes him to be willing to believe the promise. And also, when the time came, you remember, he was willing even to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Remember how God then told, after the birth of Isaac, that he was to sacrifice this son. And so it was that Abraham believed because of his love for God. We have to understand that Christian love and faith in God and faith in Jesus Christ go hand in hand. Christian love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ are in harmony with one another. There there is no contradiction between faith and love. Now, faith is distinct from love, contra the Catholic Church. Uh, Faith is resting in Christ alone for salvation. Love is the effect, it's the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. So there is a relationship, uh, but they are distinct. But there is also a harmony between the two, that faith increases love, and love increases faith. Now, John MacArthur says this, he says, quote, even when belief in a loved one's goodness is shattered, or repentance is shattered, he says, even then, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith in that person, it still can hold on to hope. That is, if somebody does something terrible and they they are impenitent about it, let's say a man leaves his wife and forsakes her and his children um, and is shattered so much in that relationship, there still is hope. Again, quoting from MacArthur, parents of backslidden children, the spouse of an unbelieving marriage partner, the church that has disciplined members who do not repent, all hope in love that the child, the spouse, the erring brother or sister will be saved or restored. Love refuses to take failure as final. I remember this, well, I don't have to remember, this morning I was coming to church and as I'm driving to church, um, I saw a man walking his dog, and I, and I tooted the horn, toot, toot, gave him a big wave as I went by. But he must have felt the awkwardness even as surely as I did, because um, that man used to be among us. 
here in this church worshiping with us. And, you know, as far as I know now, doesn't go to church. And Sunday morning, he, he's out walking the dog while here I am, coat and tie, driving to church. Surely he knew where I was going. Um, and this is, again, uh, quoting MacArthur. He says, the rope of love, love's hope, has no end. Even if we have been disappointed by brethren who have walked away from Christ in the church. He says, as long as there is life, love does not lose hope. And you know, I, I, it was interesting to see him because I still I pray for him, and I've been praying even recently for him. Um, there's a story, uh, one commentator notes, a story of a dog who stayed at an airport in a large city for over five years waiting for his master to return. Uh, he said airport employees and others fed the dog and took care of him, but the dog would not leave the spot where he last saw his master. The commentator says, if a dog's love for his master can produce that kind of hope, how much longer should our love make hope indeed last? First John 4.16, God is love. It is the simplest description of God in the Bible. The Bible says, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Love is the simplest description of Christian character. In the church in Corinth, they had the gifts, um, but the love was diminished within the congregation for each other. There was division. The church at Ephesus, we know in the book of Revelation, had an orthodoxy, but had fallen into lovelessness. They had lost their first love. Again, as I said a few weeks ago, John MacArthur says it is easier to be orthodox than it is to be loving. It's easier to be orthodox than it is to be loving. Satan seeks to keep us from loving. Uh, Sproul has noted that love is not mere sentimentality. A lot of Weddings have 1 Corinthians 13 read, but love is, that chapter is not meant to be sentimental. <laughs> it's meant to be convicting, to drive us to Christ, to think, who, who loves like this? But only God in Jesus Christ does. Love is self-giving. It is more concerned with giving than receiving. It is better to give than to receive. Jonathan Edwards says, love is the sum of all saving grace. And this is, of course, because love is alien to human fallen nature. It takes work of the Holy Spirit to work love within us. Jesus said in, the Matthew, uh, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Romans chapter 5 says God has so loved us while we were his enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more ought we to love those who are our enemies if God has loved us while we were his enemies? John 13, 1, Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them, we are told, to the end. Love is the fulfillment of the law. In Romans chapter 13, look at Romans 13 here in your Bible. Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 8 and 9. 
Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. In verse 9, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in what? In this saying, says Paul, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love to God and love to neighbor. Um. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Bible says we are to pursue love. We are, we are to be actively pursuing love. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 14, we are told to put on love. We put off the old man, we put on Christ, we put on love. In uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, we are told to increase and abound in love. We're told that love is to be sincere in 2 Corinthians. We are told in Philippians 2.2, we are to be unified in love. 1 Peter 4.8 says, fervent in love. Hebrews 10.24 says, stimulate one another to love. You can see how many times the New Testament is teaching on this point. Now, we also want to remember that Christian love perseveres. It doesn't quit on God or on people on God's people especially, if they quit on God and God's people, then they have never had true Christian love to begin with. True love perseveres because love comes as the fruit of the new birth. You can't lose the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God truly works within a believer, He regenerates that person. He brings them to new life in Jesus Christ and the fruits begins to come forth from that work. If God has really done that work, you will continue in that work all the days of your life. You will persevere in love. So 1 John 2.9 says, Those who went out from us, that is, those who leave the church, leave the place of God's love and the love of the brethren, he says what? They were never really of us because they did not have the work of grace in their heart. Now this means by way of application that you and I have to be aware of the reality of apostasy to leave God. Apostasy is the leaving of God, boys and girls. And it's something we have to be very guarded against because there is within us here uh, this continual residual sin that seeks to war against the grace of God within us. Now, do not hear me say that the true Christian can lose their salvation. But in Hebrews chapter 6, for example, we'll get to that chapter one day, Paul is writing here to professing Christians. But yet, pastorally, he still warns them about apostasy. And, and, and we do need that pastoral warning because the seeds of our own destruction are still within us. And they have to be mortified. Now, by the grace of God, they will be mortified and we will persevere. So we have to be aware of apostasy. We have to be warned of leaving God because if we leave God, we do so because we did not truly love God as God. Now, where does apostasy begin? One commentator says apostasy begins in the heart and then with the feet. Apostasy begins in the heart alienation from God, and then with the feet. Then they leave the church. 
So what is the lesson for you and me? The lesson, therefore, for you and me is to guard your heart. Watch over the temper of your own heart. If you sense that your heart is drifting from God and God's people, then you need to go to God for grace, to give you the grace. Now, Spurgeon wrote, I don't know if this was a sermon or a pamphlet or what, but it was entitled, Why Some Leave Christ. Why Some Leave Christ. Or to put it another way, reasons that people do not endure in love. Why do some people lose love? And Spurgeon gave here six reasons, six reasons. Number one, some people lose Christ, they leave Christ because they cannot bear his doctrine. John chapter 6, verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Some of the people said. And so they began to leave Jesus Christ. Some, you have to realize some of the parts of the gospel are offensive to the natural man. Now, we don't want to be offensive with our lives, right? We don't want to be offensive because we're obnoxious and sinful, okay? But even Jesus offended people with the gospel because it went contrary to their sense of self-righteousness or against something else that they treasured more than God himself. So there are some parts of the gospel that are offensive and some people will walk because of that. Number two, some desert the Savior for the sake of gain. Some leave Jesus Christ for the sake of gain. Colossians 4.14. Paul sends his greetings along with Luke and a man called Demas. Now to me, that is really one of the most astounding things, I, I think, in, in where you, you... It's just there... And nothing is, you have to put it together, though, with what later is written by Paul. You say, what does that have to do, greetings from Demas? You have to go further in your Bible. Uh, later, when Paul wrote a, a future letter, <coughs> and he said that Demas has left us. He said, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. When Paul was writing the letter to the Colossians, he gave greetings with Luke and, and Demas. But by the time he writes that second epistle to Timothy, Demas is gone. Demas is also mentioned as a fellow worker in Philemon, verse 24. Now Jesus warned us of this. He said that some seed would fall into thorny ground and it would get choked. And we have to be aware of that. Beware of the pride of life. Beware of the thorns of this present life that will come in and seek to strangle, if you will, the grace of God. Now, some leave Jesus Christ because of persecution. Jesus said that some would spring up quickly, but it would wither under the heat of the sun. The sun represented difficulties and trials and tribulations because the world has rejected Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that no man is above his master. If they hated me, they will also hate you. And that's too much for some people. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. I cannot be hated and persecuted like that. From time to time... Spurgeon says, fourthly, from time to time, there are people who forsake true religion out of sheer levity. Spurgeon gives a really interesting illustration. He says, some ships hit rocks. 
Some collide with another ship and sink. But he says there are some ships that go down at sea for no known reason. It's a calm and a cloudless day. And suddenly the ship is gone. And Spurgeon compares this to those who take Jesus lightly. They take on Christ lightly, he says, and they shed him lightly too. Easy to come to Christ, easy to leave him. So we need to pray that we would be rooted and ground up, grounded, excuse me, rooted and grounded and built up in the love of Jesus Christ. Many leave Jesus Christ for the sake of sensual enjoyments. Number five, and then finally number six, some leave Jesus Christ for unsound doctrine. They begin to believe errors and end up leaving Christ himself. Ebenezer Erskine, the uh, 18th century Scottish Presbyterian minister who, uh, for whom he and his brother Ralph Erskine College in due west South Carolina is named for, Ebenezer Erskine, he was born in 1680, lived in 1754, um, notes the evil of apostasy in the deep wounds it brings to religion and the reproach it brings on the good ways of God. He says, apostasy grieves the hearts of the godly whose hearts God would not grieve. Perpetual apostasy, says Erskine, in the whole is a prelude to eternal banishment and separation from the presence of God. And so Ebenezer Erskine warns us, he says, if you backslide for a reason, you put God's whip into his hand to chastise you. Because God's purpose for you, if you are really one of the elect, is what? Is your future glorification. And so if you, leave, if you out of your own will, leave a God's will for your ultimate life, that is for your glory, then he's going to do whatever it takes to bring you back into those paths of righteousness. Psalm 89, verse 30 to 32, says this. The psalmist says, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now, Erskine goes on. He says there are advantages to being stable in clinging to Jesus Christ and not backsliding. And he gives three here. Three reasons it's better to cling to Jesus Christ and not to backslide. Number one, if you cling to Jesus Christ and his love, it furnishes you with a lot of inward peace and tranquility of mind, he says. And he quotes Psalm 119, verses 165. Great peace have they which love thy law. So a lot of comfort comes to people who lay hold of Christ and stay in his love. Number two, Erskine says it glorifies God. Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. When you persevere in the love of God and show forth the love of Jesus Christ in your own life, you are a witness to the watching world. And then number three, Stability in a Christian walk affords courage and confidence at the approach of death. Stability in your Christian walk affords you courage and confidence when you are nearing death. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. See what Paul is doing there? He is saying that by God's grace I have been faithful. I've stayed the course. I've persevered. I've continued in the love of God. And now what awaits me is the reward of heaven and of Christ himself. So Erskine gives this advice with regard to Christian love persevering and enduring. And uh, one, two, three, four, six. These final six thoughts and we close. Six applications within, with your love enduring. And then, God willing, we'll move on in Peter here. <laughs> to verse eight. <laughs> final six applications. Make sure, number one, make sure your foundation is well laid upon the everlasting rock of Jesus Christ. Check your foundation. What's your life built on? Is your faith really built on Jesus Christ? What evidence do you give for that? Erskine says, Every other foundation is proven shaky and worthless when the storm comes. So make sure that you are building your life on the rock. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the wise man builds his house on the rock and it's able to withstand the storms. A man who builds his home on the sinking sand will be found out when the judgment comes. So number one, make sure your foundation in Jesus Christ is well laid. Number two, maintain a jealousy over your own heart. Maintain a jealousy over your own heart. Proverbs 28, 26. He that trusts his own heart is a fool. Why? Well, because our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. And, and by the way, young people, the culture is always telling you to go with your heart, to believe, your heart, follow your heart. The trouble is that the heart is deceitful. The, the, you need to be following God's word. That's what you need to be doing. Not, not listening to necessarily your own heart, but listen to the word of God. Let the word of God inform your heart. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Erskine says, Maintain a jealousy over your own heart. Beware of the sproutings of bitter, the bitter root of unbelief which causes people to depart from the living God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Watch out for the bitter root of unbelief, worming its way in your soul. Number three, with regard to enduring love, keep your eyes on the promises of persevering grace. Keep your eyes on the promises of God in persevering grace. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will, not, I will not turn away from them. This is God speaking about his people. God is saying, I won't turn away from my people. I will do them good. I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Ebenezer Erskine also says this, quote, God stands on both sides of the covenant to fulfill both his and our part of the same. I love that. God says, here's the conditions of the covenant. He's on one side, and then he sends his son into the world, and the son fulfills the conditions of the covenant for us. 
Make sure the foundation is well laid on the rock. Have a jealousy over your heart. Keep your eyes on the promises of persevering grace. Number four, keep a steady eye on Christ, the blessed mediator of the covenant. Look time and again to Jesus Christ. Some of you may struggle with assurance, and this is a particularly apropos for you. And that is, as you are aware of your sin and your sin discourages you and may even cause you to doubt your own standing with Jesus Christ, the Puritans used to say, for every glance at yourself, glance several times at Jesus. That is, look more to Christ and less to yourself, because the more you simply look at yourself, the worse your condition will become. You will get more discouraged and more depressed because you will see more and more how you are failing in the keeping of God's commandments. But the more you look to Christ, the more you see somebody who did keep all of God's law. The more you see the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the more you see the love of God for you in Jesus Christ, the more you see how great a Savior he is, etc. Here, So keep a steady eye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, beware of the first beginnings of defection and backsliding. Beware of the first beginnings of defection and backsliding. Defections, say Ebenezer, says Ebenezer, defections are like a giant stone rolling down a mountain. Often they do not stop until they reach the bottom. So it's better to not allow a rock to begin to slide down the mountain than to try and stop one that is going down the mountain. Beware of the first inklings of a problem within your heart a tendency to backsliding, deal with it sooner because it's only going to get harder to deal with later. And then finally, sixthly, study to be well-skilled in the unmasking of the mystery of iniquity and discerning the devices of Satan. Study to be well-skilled in the unmasking of the mystery of iniquity, discerning the devices of Satan. Recognize you have an enemy against you. But also prepare yourselves for suitable antidotes for every attack of Satan. So, for example, if Satan suggests to you that sin is pleasant, what do you do? Well, ask yourself, are the fires of hell pleasant? Is it pleasant to be in that place where the worm is never satisfied? where the fire is never quenched, where there is outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because that is the end of sin, if it is not ended in the cross of Jesus Christ. It ends in judgment. If, uh, Erskine says, if Satan suggests that no one will see or know about this sin, then ask Satan if he can shut the eye of an omniscient God. God We'll see for sure. And then finally, Erskine says, if Satan suggests that sin is profitable, quote him the words of Jesus, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses 